Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Lisa Pignanesi. I'm the chair of the Freud Museum, and it's a very great pleasure to welcome you here this evening to the Adam Freud Center and to this conversation uh, between Adam Phillips and Giles Fraser. Um, the subject of tonight's conversation is one I'd really love to have Freud listening in on, uh, because I've always thought of him as um, the great Enlightenment critic of religion, of faith, and um, having a conversation about this subject here tonight with a man who is a priest, Giles Fraser, not Adam Phillips, <laughs> and who um, had a Jewish father um, and who is a canon in the Church of England, was the um, uh, canon chancellor or chancellor canon of St. Paul's and resigned over the issue of how the Occupy people were going to be removed from um, St. Paul's is, is I think, um, well, it's an interesting moment, very interesting for me as well. Um, Giles is also a broadcaster, uh, a Guardian columnist, and uh, is doing, writing a book on Nietzsche called, not... Cho no, no, done that. Done that? Yes, yeah. writ has written. Has written a book on Nietzsche called <laughs> Not Chosen. Not Chosen. <laughs> it's a no, tense issue. That's coming up. That's a book that's coming. I've got yeah. it all wrong. No, don't worry. See, I don't. Well, he's written a lot of books. He's an expert on Nietzsche, and he's writing Not Chosen. Adam Phillips is known to all of you as a psychoanalyst, as one of our finest essayists, um, a man, every one of which, of whose sentences uh, makes me want to pause and think differently. <laughs> and um, he is about to become known to you as the biographer of the young Freud. When is that coming out, Adam? In April. In April. Okay, I look forward to that too. And, and has a new collection of chosen and selected essays um, coming out called, 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 help me. Um, one way and another. One way and another. It tells you about the length of my memory here. Anyhow, they're going to have a conversation um, between themselves and will draw you in as and when they see fit. There's a roving mic which Stefan will bring to you. So please give them a great welcoming hand. Um, this is one of those things that uh, we haven't really rehearsed and we don't know where we're going. So um, I'm going to talk for five or six minutes, I guess, and then Adam and I go to chat for a bit. Um, and pretty soon, uh, certainly sooner rather than later, we're going to try and um, bring in everybody here into the conversation and have it as a more interactive thing. Um, Adam and I, you're sort of eavesdropping to start with on a conversation that Adam and I have been having for a couple of years, maybe, mm -hmm. something yeah, like that. Yeah. And it's probably worth um, saying uh, where that conversation has been a little bit to the extent that it's possible. Um, I wrote a book a dozen or so years ago now uh, on Nietzsche, um, uh, which Adam read and kindly uh, wrote to me and said, you read it and you liked it and should we meet up and sent me a book of his own, which um, I realized was in a sense, some of it, um, thinking about some of the same issues. Um, my book on Nietzsche um, was uh, said two, two basic things. First of all, Nietzsche was uh, completely uninterested and the question of God's existence didn't bother him one way or the other. And um, in a sense, uh, I'm the same, uh, which may seem rather odd. 
Um, and what I mean by that is uh, that, put it the other way around, my friend Martin Rosen, who's the uh, cartoonist for The Guardian, we went out for a curry a few weeks ago, and he said, even if God walked through the door today, I'd be an atheist. If he, even if he walked through and just, like, showed himself, here I am, I'm here, he'd still be an atheist. And uh, I'm sort of the opposite to that as well. I'd still, I'd still be a Christian even if uh, I was completely clear that uh, someone demonstrated to me it wasn't true. So uh, that's, uh, we can, I'm sure you want to talk about that. But um, I'm profoundly uninterested in the debates that we have um, at the moment uh, about the question of God's existence. And Nietzsche, um, obviously a, a fascinating and vociferous atheist, uh, was an atheist for a different sort of reason. Um, in a sense, that's the sort of something about the conversation that Adam and I have been having. Um, the puzzle that I started with with Nietzsche was, uh, why is it that a man with such an atheist, such a profound atheist, could sound so religious? Uh, why did he release religious language all the time? Why was his, all of his books saturated with religious imagery and so forth? And that was partly to do with the fact that he came from an incredibly religious background. Uh, his parents um, and uh, grandparents uh, were all Lutheran pastors. And he grew up um, when his uh, father died when he was young. Um, he won the university preaching prize, Nietzsche did, when he was a, um, when he was a kid in his first year. And he grew up in a rather claustrophobic uh, house of, um, of his mum and his uh, sister, who were all terribly pious. And uh, for him, escaping from that piety um, was experienced uh, as a form of salvation. And it's almost like the escape from religion uh, became a form of, of salvation. So atheism uh, as, a, as a sort of redemptive experience. Um, and that's why I think that Nietzsche sounds so religious, even though he's an atheist, because uh, he could escape from religion uh, in terms of you know, belief in the existence of God, but he never quite found a way to escape from the idea of redemption. And uh, redemption was always something that he was fascinated by, even the extent to which he wanted to be redeemed from the need for redemption. So uh, that was the... That was the sort of, you know, that was, that was the book to which Adam sent me his. Now, I know nothing about Freud and um, psychoanalysis, uh, really. But the extent to which I understand Adam's Freud, and he's going to tell me this in a minute, and, and, and particularly the challenge, this is the book he sent me, his On Balance. And there's a, there's a bit in the middle, uh, a chapter called, well, uh, it's one chapter with a few parts called Negative Capabilities. And uh, in the middle of that, there's, a, I think, a fascinating chapter on Freud and helplessness. And uh, Adam's criticism of religion, I'll put it that way, but you can sophisticate that, oh, I think, um, is based around this business of, of helplessness. The story is something like this as I understand it, that um, human beings begin in a sort of original state of helplessness. Original helplessness is, is Freud's phrase, isn't it? Um, we are unable to um, meet our own desires. We're unable to be the source of our own satisfaction. So we're dependent and we're vulnerable. 
And this vulnerability on others, this dependence on others, is, um, is both a source of terror. Um, we're afraid of that dependency. We're afraid of abandonment and all the various things that that implies. But it's also a source of um, a sort of moral sensibility, if you like. And that this dependency on others is the way in which we, I guess, I, I wrote, when I wrote about it once, uh, I wrote that uh, it has within it a sense that human beings come ontologically stamped with fragile handle with care. Um, that, you know, that our sense of dependency, our sort of vulnerability and fragility and so forth. Now, there are various different ways of denying this fragility, denying this vulnerability. And one potential way of denying this fragility and vulnerability is, you can put it in the box called, called religion. And uh, I think Adam explores the way in this chapter, the way in which religion is an attempt to deny one's inherent vulnerability. That redemption, perhaps, is a way of leapfrogging, or the fantasy of leapfrogging our vulnerabilities to a place where we are the satisfied in such a way that our vulnerabilities are, are no longer present, a way in which we are redeemed from almost the constituent elements of our humanity. And that feels like a betrayal of our humanity and something that is dangerous morally and and even sort of spiritually, though I don't really know what that word actually means. Um, so that the charge, if that's not st too strong a word, is that um, the religious instinct is always to try and overcome our helplessness, to get a daddy in the sky to, to satisfy us, uh, to not be content with the fragility of the human condition. Now, have I got that right? <laughs> now, I've got two things to say about that before we start off our conversation. One is, I think Christianity in particular, I mean, there is, there's no such thing as religion, as religions. And I think Christianity is, is rather different. Um, in, in so far as the central image of the divine is a baby. And uh, certainly one of them. And so uh, God is reimagined not as simply some father in the sky that satisfies our need, but actually as entirely fragile and dependent and vulnerable. And all those birth narratives are emphasize the fragility of God, the vulnerability of the divine. And so what's, I mean, and that's precisely why uh, so many uh, contemporaries of Christianity, particularly the Greeks, uh, thought Christianity was really weird. I mean, how can you have God as a baby? How can you God have God as fragile so, you know, when they responded to St. John's Gospel, for instance, they loved the beginning. The Greeks, in the beginning is the Word, and the Word was God, all that highfalutin philosophical stuff. And then when it gets to verse 14 of St. John's Gospel, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, 
I thought, that's just ridiculous. They just didn't like that at all. Um, and that sort of repulsion is, I think, uh, on behalf of a sort of uh, Greek idea of God, uh, is a reflection of how very, very different Christianity's idea of the divine is. That actually fragility and vulnerability is, is a part of the uh, experience, I think, of being a Christian. Um, now, again, there's, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's loads of different ways uh, of, of being a Christian. Um, for me, uh, I'm with uh, Dennis Potter, and I see Christianity as more the question rather than the answer, more the, the, the wound rather than the healing of it. Um, I see it as, a, as, a, as the cry um, rather than the answer to the cry. Um, but that's, and that, I think, has been throughout Christian history one very important strand of, um, of thought. Just, so that would be sort of roughly my answer to this question of, of, of um, the, you know, the idea that religion denies our intrinsic humanity by denying our fragility and our vulnerability. I'd also want to do one, I can't ever pass by the opportunity of having a little swipe at um, at the Dawkins-esque brigade, and and I won't won't, uh, miss this opportunity either while I have an audience. Um, Because I think actually the charge is much better made against them. And I think it's sort of made, um, though uh, Adam doesn't uh, specifically mention it, in another of Adam's books, um, Missing Out. One of the things that Adam and I bonded over, perhaps uh, it was worth saying, is we both bonded over a a shared love of Stanley Cavell, which... um, and his reading of, uh, particularly his reading of Shakespeare. And there's a reading of Othello, which I've always, um, I've always liked. I'm told by friends here that it's a terrible reading of Othello, and I can see my friends smiling. I don't care whether it's a bad reading of Othello. I'm just interested in, in, the, in using Othello as a, as a, uh, a vehicle for this point. Um, and this point is to say that actually it's sort of the... Uh, the new atheist, this is the argument I'm going to make with Adams and Cavell's <coughs> words. It's the new atheists that are denying vulnerability um, in one particular way. And, they, and, and the argument goes something like this. Um, Othello's a soldier. Soldiers hate being vulnerable. They like to be hard. Um, Othello falls in love, but uh, is, uh, finds it incredibly uncomfortable to be dependent upon this woman uh, that he loves. Does she love him back? Uh, that sort of uh, perennial part of the human condition about, about um, being in love. And, and demands ocular proof, I think is the phrase, isn't it? O- de- demands proof of her love for him. Um, of course, there's no such thing as uh, proof that somebody loves you. How do you prove that somebody loves you? Iago comes along and goes, oh, no, there may not be proof that someone loves you, but there's certainly proof that someone doesn't, i.e. infidelity. So he, he is so desperate for certainty 
This is the key point. He's so desperate for solid ground that he, in the end, is prepared to believe the bloody handkerchief as proof of the fact that she doesn't, and in the end, murders the, the source of his own potential satisfaction. Why am I talking to you about this? Because I think that what you have within uh, a certain sort of mindset uh, is the idea that certainty can somehow, uh, again, leapfrog some of the anxieties of what it is to be human, the dependency on other people. And that idea that's there within scientism, that somehow that certainty can play a, a role of um, finding a way beyond or through the vulnerabilities of not knowing or uncertainty or the vulnerabilities of, of doubt is, for me, an equivalent sort of... Uh, is an equivalent denial of human fragility and human vulnerability and our... The idea that doubt is intrinsic to the human condition. So I sort of want to make the charge the other way, to the way that, that, that uh, Adam presents it, gently presents it, I think it's right to say, in, um, in, in the middle chapter of, of On Balance, which is to say that the charge, and I think a charge he makes, is much better located at the door of a contemporary Christianity in its all its certainties and contemporary atheism in all its certainties. And I think what we're really uh, both uh, having a go at is something you might call the lust for certainty. Or for redemption. Through certainty, yeah. yeah. Um, when you were talking about Christianity putting a child in the centre of the picture, I thought of um, the comment Emerson made about this in his book on Milton, where he says, why would... Why would... No. Oh, good. Oh. Even better. <laughs> Can you hear me at the back? Okay. Can you hear me now? Okay. I thought of Emerson's remark, which was, talking about Milton's Paradise Lost, how could anybody worship a god who wants to torture his son? Now, it's not an unfamiliar point, but it is a significant one in relation to this vulnerability question. Now, one of the things that I was interested in that essay and am interested in, which, again, we've talked about a lot, is why vulnerability or dependence should be a problem at all. If, in other words, why should something so fundamental, without which we couldn't be the people we are, the creatures we are, become the problem rather than simply the way we are? So what I was trying to do in the essay, and I'm and still interested in, is something along these lines, which, I th which is linked to what you were saying. It seems to me everybody lives as if they believe they are dependent on something or other, or a range of things and people. They may, these may be unconscious beliefs, but one's living as if one can only live or have the life one wants, depending on certain things and people. That being a conscious and unconscious assumption. Now, what psychoanalysis does, and what British psychoanalysis in particular does, is it puts this back to the baby and the mother. And it says, looking for a beginning 
to the story, even though it couldn't be a beginning to the story. Because it seems to me, one of the things that you're intimating about the Dawkins thing is that everybody in this room, I mean, those of us who aren't religious, one or two or three generations ago would have been, uh, all our relatives transgenerationally, were religious people. So God doesn't die overnight and we all become secular in ten minutes. This just isn't going to happen. In other words, there are tr we've got transgenerationally um, transmitted religious sensibilities that we're struggling with. And I understand this to be um, uh, to do with a change of vocabulary. We're trying to find languages for the things that matter most to us. Well, for, you know, whatever it is, hundreds and thousands of years, different religious languages have been the best way to talk about the things that matter most. In our lifetime, pre our lifetime, there have been secular languages. The language of evolution, the language of psychoanalysis, and there are plenty. The language of physics, there are lots of them. The thing, the bit that seems to me to be of significance or importance in this is the thing you're referring to, which is um, what to do about vulnerability and dependence. Now, the, the developmental, one developmental story in psychoanalysis is that one grows into independence. Now, either this is a mastering of dependence or it's a sort of subsuming of dependence. But one way or another, the story is we get more and more independent. And that means... It are, at, at one end, self-reliant. But on the other hand, it plays into fantasies of self-sufficiency. Yeah. So what I want to say in the essay and want to say is we're always equally dependent and vulnerable and we're all equally vulnerable and dependent. There aren't gradations here. There aren't some people are more dependent and needy. We're all the same. That, that's my prejudicial belief here. So that some people may look more independent, but they're not. Uh, these are all different a range of different solutions to the same problem. And the solutions are called character. Now, in relation to this, I suppose, the question is, um, how can we resist um, feeling persecuted by our own vulnerability such that we want to torture it in other people? Yeah. So for me, this comes out in the wash as a question about sadomasochism, which is... If we can't bear our own vulnerability, this is obviously a psychoanalytic story and therefore not necessarily a true story, but the psychoanalytic story would be, if you can't bear your... religion. It, it is, absolutely. <laughs> um, if you can't bear your vulnerability and your dependence, one of the things you're able to do about it is project it into somebody else and then punish them or humiliate them or diminish them. So it becomes, for me, it becomes a moral question in a way, which is clearly it's for you too, which is, um, is it possible to live a life in which one doesn't need to intimidate or humiliate other people. And I intimidation, as you said earlier, is the promise of humiliation. I think that's right. And that the, the humiliation is always, humiliation is always humiliating somebody's dependence, one way or another. It always takes that form. So my objection, which is the, an obvious one and, and not an original one, to, the, to one version of a religious story, is that if one person's extremely vulnerable, one person is extremely invulnerable. And the risk is we produce a sadomasochistic split in which, let's, let's say for the sake of argument, the Jewish God is immensely powerful and omnipotent and we are helpless creatures. Now, it seems to me that relationship is a fundamental relationship that permeates all our relationships, one way or another. Somebody's very powerful and somebody's very powerless. Somebody depends upon somebody else and entrusts them not to exploit their dependence. So that becomes like a basic model or structure. Um, another way of thinking about this, I suppose, and this is linked. There are two bits. One is, is God a man or a woman? 
because obviously in, in object relations you get a, a displacement of a Christ, Christianity onto a mother-child relationship, if you see what I mean, as opposed to a, a father-child um, relationship. So in, for example, um, I don't know how to put this, but what's the difference between uh, believing your life depends upon an object you know nothing about and cannot control as opposed to an object you believe you can know and believe you can control. So in, say, a, a Winnicottian or developmental story, it would be like this. To begin with, the infant hat from the outside has the illusion that he controls the object he needs. Over a period of time, he is disillusioned of this. But he begins believing he controls the object he depends on. In other words, he begins believing, in a sense, he's not dependent. He's just alive in, as it were, what we would call a commonwealth. Whereas if you begin by believing that you depend upon an object that you know nothing about, and, and that is male, ostensibly, and that you have no control over, it seems to me these are very different pictures of a life, right? So you might, if we were to think of this, I know this is very, very A-level, but we think of this in terms of the Reformation and the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism. And you must tell me this is right, because it may be wrong. But my assumption here is that in Catholicism, there is the belief that you can influence God. You can do things and say things that will influence him. In other words, you have some effect on the object you depend on. In extreme Protestantism, the acknowledgement, which seems to me to be actually more realistic but more terrifying, is that you know nothing about the object you depend on. You know absolutely nothing about it, and you are totally dependent on it. Right? Yes. Now, you could say it's the unconscious. We know absolutely nothing about it. We're dependent. Or we could say, it's my mother. I know absolutely nothing about her. Or you could say, it's my parents. I know absolutely nothing about their relationship. I'm totally dependent on them. But it seems to me a lot hinges upon whether there is the illusion of having some control and knowledge about the object one depends on. Well, that is indeed, I think it is indeed at the heart of the, that Reformation thing. Um, because... Um, Luther was an Augustinian monk. Yeah. And really, it's all about Augustine. Yeah. I mean, I think all Christianity is footnotes yeah. to Augustine. And in particular, I think footnotes to the debate between Augustine and Pelagius. And if that's uh, perhaps... Shall I do, yeah, do two minutes on it? Yeah, yeah do. Um, so Pelagius is this um, fat Scottish monk uh, that comes down to Rome in the mm, late the 4th century, something like that. And um, he comes with a really, really simple message. Uh, and Pelagius' message is, um, God gives you this set of rules. All you have to do is live out the rules. And if you live out the rules, then you go to heaven. It's a very simple sort of <coughs> version of Christianity. Um, and in fact, you know, and I, I always imagine that he comes to this sort of, at the end of the Roman Empire, it's all a bit decadent. <coughs> I'm thinking togas and grapes and orgies. And, um, and comes in with this, you know, this... Very, very simple form of Christianity. Um, keep the rules, you keep the rules, you go to heaven. And actually, it's a form of Christianity that people sort of still subscribe to in one way or another, this sort of Pelagianism. Augustine, um, when he hears about this, launches into, and Augustine is my great intellectual hero, launches this massive attack on Pelagius, which really changes the sort of intellectual temper of Christianity, which goes... That's crap. It's crap because no one can keep the rules. And so what you've actually got in this situation is a God who gives you impossible rules to follow and then punishes you for not following them. 
That's just like, you know, that's a sick system. Or has rules you can't know about. Or, well, the, or that's another problem, but that's not, that wasn't Augustine's problem with Pelagius. Um, so Augustine goes, um, no, 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 you can't follow the rules. And, you, and one of Augustine's problems in related to what you were saying is you can't manipulate. Augustine was worried that what Pelagius is trying to do is you're manipulating God. I can do all these rules. I've ticked the whole box. There you go. Let me in. So I'm sort of controlling. I'm controlling the situations. I can, I've, 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 I've managed to manipulate the divine, to bounce the divine into, into doing what I want. Um, Augustine goes, no, we can't keep the rules. There's no way we can keep the rules. And the only way in which uh, we can... Uh, the purpose of the rules is to show us our own incapacity, that actually we are fundamentally dependent creatures, that uh, whatever salvation means, it comes that way. So it comes as grace, as like the rain. We have no control over it whatsoever. Um, and now this is... Uh, so so it is, a, it is a, a version of Christianity in which you are completely aware of your own vulnerability and dependency. But secu- and this gets... Let me just say one thing. Secular, secularized, you could say, it becomes a question, can you make people love you? Exactly right. Or is it exactly something right. completely different? Yes. So Pelagius wanted uh, to set up a system where you made somebody else love you. Yeah, that there were so ways of doing the it. Way, there's a way of doing it. There's a way of making God love you. And basically... Here's the checklist, follow the checklist, and, and God will love you. Or, uh, Augustine goes, not possible. It's not possible to do. If someone loves you, they just do, and it comes from them. Yeah. And it's not something that you can manipulate yeah, them into, yeah. into doing. But the moral consequences of that are, um, could be, one, at one end of the spectrum, it doesn't matter what you do. Well, that's or a, you can do anything. And that's a particular version of the Reformation. Yeah, so that's yeah. why antinomianism was yeah. so strong, yeah. the Reformation. Yeah. And you get, so, with, with Luther, you see... It has this, Luther's such a very interesting uh, case study, I think, being a sort of hyper-Augustinian. Luther starts out being a monk trying to follow the rules, realises that actually he's coming to hate God. I mean, you know, he uses this, absolutely hate God for doing this thing. And and realising the rules are just, all you have to do is go, I can't do it. And that's the point at which you invite the love. But it's also interesting, isn't it, whether it's I can't do it or I don't want to do it. I mean, if I can't do it, I mean... It's like that bit in Ghostbusters where they cross the... It's worth it. Don't cross the... What does it say? Don't yeah. cross the... Don't cross the streams. Don't cross the streams. Have you just done that? I can't remember what I was going to say. It was so long ago. <laughs> so long ago. Um, <laughs> yes, there's a difference between saying I can't do it and I don't want to do it. Because in the Luther story, it's as though a standard has been set by something or somebody that is intrinsically demeaning. I'm not up to it. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Yes, yes, in yes. an antinomian view, you could say, well, actually, I set my own standards. I'm a law unto myself. I can decide what the rules are. Or we, some group of like-minded people, can decide the standards we're going to live by. And it seems to me it, it matters this a lot because it becomes a version of um, if you can't do anything... If there's nothing you can do to make somebody love you who you love or desire, it's immensely freeing. But it produces a non-prescriptive morality. 
I mean, everybody's had this experience, presumably one version or another, where they've, there's somebody they desire, and they've thought, well, the way to seduce this person is to be very nice to them. Mm. And then they discover that being nice doesn't always work. Yeah. Why doesn't it? Yeah. Well, psychoanalysis follows on from that. Yeah. It gives you lots of stories of why obviously it doesn't work. Yeah. But it's a version of this yeah. issue, which is, and if you were to put it psychoanalytically in a sort of slightly mystificatory way, you'd say there are unconscious communications going on between people. That, it, that people are drawn to each other for reasons of which they are unconscious. And this, and this finds its sort of um, theological analogy in an absolutely unknowable God. Mm, exactly right. And, and a non-redemptive life. If you say, I mean, that would be the, the secular version of this, which is there's nothing to redeem. It's not that we've fallen short of something that needs to be recovered, but actually there's nothing wrong with us. But you see... Except that we're vulnerable and dependent. But, that, but that's, not, that's not a moral... That we can give that a moral connotation, but it doesn't intrinsically have one. You'll see that the problem that Adam and I have with each other, and this has always been a problem, is that we always struggle to find out what we disagree about. Yeah. And actually, the, the, the struggle is always a struggle. The, the, we presume that we must disagree about a lot, but we still can't find it. And that's, it's almost the search for what is it that we disagree about, which I think is the interesting... Um, this, this business... I don't want to put it just as you put it just now, because I think that even though it, it has to be right that accepting that vulnerability and helplessness and so forth um, is a part of, is, is, a, is essential in, in our sort of moral construction, all those other things. I also think the urge to overcome it is also a part of it. And that the urge to overcome it uh, can't be just immediately, you know, it's not like, oh, let's just, let's just forget about the urge no, to overcome no, it. No, but, no, but we could say we've inherited a vocabulary that says we have an urge to overcome it, right? What I th want to say is something like, A, there's nothing to overcome, B, it's wonderful. Why would you want to overcome something as wonderful as being Oh, fuck vulnerable? off. Excuse me. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's, re it's really interesting. Because, hold on a second. What there isn't to overcome... Sorry, that was just, Is this being recorded? It is, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've, you've really blown the film of this already. <laughs> you knew I could rely on you. What was I saying? What are you saying? What was I saying? So, nothing to overcome. You don't need to overcome Yeah, anything. exactly. No, I, know, I, don't, I don't mean there's nothing to overcome. I'm talking about the specific area, which is we don't need, nor should we be trying to overcome, our dependence and our vulnerability. In other words, that's the bit that seems to me to be important to this, which is, what else would we do with it if we didn't do that? Because the vocabularies we've inherited all say, either it's, it's virtually um, synonymous with sin, or it's evidence of personal weakness, or it's evidence of moral failure. All our morality is organized around this idea, right? So w what I'm wondering is, what would it be like if instead of thinking this is a major problem, we thought this is a major gift? So people would say things like, the great thing about me is I'm a really dependent, helpless person. I'm really clueless. Yeah, 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 I really yeah. don't know what to do. No, I understand that. I really don't understand. But In why other, is everybody laughing? Exactly. It's, the, it's what Freud calls the laughter of unease, I presume. I mean, that, that's to say, there's a real pleasure in this somewhere. That, but, but it's a repressed pleasure, let's say. I'm not saying it's true of all everybody in the room. But that, that would be... Do you think so? What does that mean, do you think?
But, I mean, but if I think woman, along the line said, what will I then think? I mean, what, what's the... What's the Well, well, do you, you mean? Oh, well, then, yeah, maybe it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe that's right. Sorry. Mm. You see, I think, in a way, it's different. I'll tell you why. Because I think that, I think that um, gendering it already loads the dice here. Because I think that, in a way, see, we could say that one of the things about dependence and vulnerability is pre-gender. Now, it, it may be that male and female vulnerability and dependence have been connoted differently, but that, of course, frees us to connote it differently. But one thing we all share, even if, we don't, even if both of the sexes don't have the same genitals, they all are dependent, they all have anuses, they all breathe, they all need to eat. So I'm suggesting this is pre-gender, and therefore more interesting as a consequence, because when it gets gendered, it changes. So there's that, there's that really great line in Wallace Stevens, um, in The Man with the Blue Guitar, where he goes, but play you must a tune beyond us, yet ourselves. Mm. Okay. So you're emphasising the yet ourselves bit, and I'm emphasising a tune beyond us bit yeah. and so forth. So but my challenge to you is, but that, that ideal of beyond us, as well as being ourselves, is a part of what it is to yeah, be yeah. human. I know, I know, I mean, of course it is, but the link is, you see, the beyond us for me is beyond the vocabularies we've inherited. So you see, I feel like I'm on the side of beyond us here. I'm saying, what, what might be beyond us that we haven't thought about these things? What, how, could you, how could you re-describe or relive or re-experience vulnerability and dependence in a way that didn't make it a problem or didn't assume that it was a weakness and weakness was a moral failure? So you'd be like saying... But doesn't the baby you know, in the manger do that? It, it may do, but the baby in the manger grows up to be somebody who's tortured. By his father. More forms of vulnerability. Well, uh, that's another... That's yeah, another no, well, that would be one story about it, but the other story would be another form of torture or yeah. a story of the means just by the end. I think we should bear... Yes, yeah, 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 we talk too much. Yeah. We talk too much. So, even though this is rather abrupt, <coughs> please speak if you can or want to. I mean, feel free not to speak, obviously, but... <coughs> this is going to be one of those silences that you have on the couch, isn't it? Uh, in Japanese Buddhism, it's all about um, accepting your total vulnerability. And if you can accept your total vulnerability, then something else, other power, Amida Buddha, comes in, sort of rushes in and looks after you. But the problem in Japan is that that rhetoric of vulnerability becomes a, a, a motif, becomes something to actually give you a kind of control. Because you use the language of your own vulnerability, yeah. how you need other power, the help of other power. Yeah. Actually, it gives you a feeling of control a feeling that you understand how things are, even while you're using the language of not understanding how things yes, are. Yes, or it becomes part of your instrumental reason. You use it in order to do something else. So how, how, can, you, how can you get around that if you want to, as you say, move away from vocabularies of And you can bully control. people with your own vulnerability yeah, as well, can't course, you? I mean, yeah. that's another very form of... Yeah, 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 very manipulative. Is, yeah. Is, there, is there a way out of that? I mean, Japanese Buddhism has always struggled to find a way out of that, using the language of other powers, a way of kind of reinforcing your own ego and your own power. Is the way of getting around it if you want to get away from these inherited vocabularies you're talking about? Well, w- um, one way of getting around it would be to think... Um, Two things. Everybody is naive all the time, and everybody's anxious all the time. 
So we'd live as if that was really true. That would mean we couldn't be over-impressed by people who seem to be immensely authoritative. Right, we, might, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we might have all sorts of feelings <coughs> about them, but we wouldn't have to be impressed by them. And we wouldn't have to feel um, that there were invidious comparisons in play. So somebody who's very, very funny doesn't have to make me feel very, very dull. Or somebody who's very, very clever doesn't have to make me feel stupid. In other words, what's the contract in the position taken? That's my, what interests me. Lisa has a question. I want to stir things a bit. Stir. Stir. <laughs> I don't want to say I want to be devil's advocate here, but I'm not sure that the two of you actually do agree with each other. Oh, good. I think you disagree profoundly. <laughs> good. And, and I hear that in the way in which every time you say something, Giles, which, which is perfectly acceptable, Adam then retranslates it into a language which to me doesn't actually have a, a beyond attached to it. It doesn't have an, another attached to it. Um, it it's about um, the way we live here and now and in our families and with each other. Um, so so there, is no, no, there is actually no other. There is, maybe, maybe it's not a question of God, but there is no other. There is no, no redemptive possibility. So I, I just want... To, to hear that being teased out a little more. I mean, I, maybe I misunderstood. Well, for me, there wouldn't be a transcendent beyond. The beyond would be the unpredictable future. And that would be as other as it gets, if you see what I mean. So there's the unknown. Yeah, there's the so unknown. We're talking about yeah. the unknown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The unknown as an empty category. We don't have to fill it before. We may have plans, but we'll work on the principle that the plans will all the time be infiltrated by contingencies. But presumably, I mean, and I know nothing about Freud, but presumably part of the whole point of Freud is that the stuff that exists in the category of the unknown, which shapes us in all sorts of ways. So, it, Yes, it does, but you could think there are two connotations here. One is that the risk is that we're always trying to make the future like the past, i.e. there's repetition. And the other bit is we're making unknowable futures out of, as it were, an unconscious... I mean, you, you know, there'd be lots of analogies. I don't understand what you just said. Well, the, the first bit would be that we're prone to repeat um, the ways in which we've been... This is now psychological language. Traumatised or fixated. We will go on repeating. So we'll go on making the future into the past. Yeah. The sense in which we always know the future in that model, right? Then there's another bit, which is... An un, a, an un, a literally unknowable unconscious, which is like a potential for future life. And Freud would say this is biologically, instinctively based. But, and it's a destiny, not in a knowable sense. But the, the, it's as though there are, it's imagined that there are parts of oneself that are pressing for gratification, for recognition, for satisfaction, for acknowledgement. And this is pulling us into the future. We're wanting things of an undiscernible kind. We think we know what we want, but actually we don't know what we want. I mean, do you, think there's a, do you think there's a myth in a certain sort of enlightenment rationalism about um, overcoming our vulnerabilities by knowing everything, as it were? I think that, yes. I think the myth is that we can know what we want, and actually we want to know what we want. That, for me, is the problem in this. I think it's a... It, 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 the life I would prefer to live is one in which I find out through the process of wanting what I want. 
not that I know beforehand, and then try and get it. And, I mean, just to, just to sort of, like, press Lisa's question a bit for the two of us, is do you think that any sort of religion can be a delivery system for that wisdom? Well, the risk is it's already telling us what it is we want. It's full of stated aims. And, what I, and why I prefer psychoanalysis, if it was a choice and it isn't, is that the version of psychoanalysis that I'm interested in is, um, is always a means to an unknowable end. The trouble is then, of course, it gets foreclosed by people having fantasies of cure. Once you've got an idea of cure, the thing has once again been shut up. That's like redemption. Yeah, it is. That's the version. But if you drop the cure idea, you've got free association taking it wherever it takes you into an unknowable future with a receptive attentive... It's not listening. a very widely... Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a populist delivery system, is it? No. <laughs> but it, but it, it isn't because it's been spoken in such unalluring language. Because it's been spoken in a Veil of Tears story. And is the novel the delivery system? Better, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, much better, much better, yeah. I think. So like Milan Kundera talks yeah. about it. Yeah, I think that's right, I agree. <clears throat> Lady in the red dress? No, no, not her. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> do you know her? Yeah, I do. She's my friend. Okay, right. So my question is for Adam. Um, do you think there is an end, then, to psychoanalysis? I mean, is it an, an unendable process if it's also an unknowable one? And, and then the second part of that question, which isn't really the second part, it's another question added on at the end, is um, this is a conversation between two positions, and I wonder whether, it's, whether it would be oxymoronic to talk about it as a monologue. In other words, would it be possible to be a religious psychoanalyst, or would you be somehow divided within yourself in that position, do you think? I think there is no end to psychoanalysis, except the end we choose to make, if you see what I mean. I mean, that's a, it doesn't have to end. I think all the stuff about, you know, the interesting thing about psychoanalysis, it's a relationship that ends and you work towards an end, is sort of mumbo-jumbo. I think that it's really, it's, it lasts as long as the two parties want it to last, for their own different reasons, if you see what I mean. So it could be unending, but it's not, it doesn't have an intrinsic end, except one person dying, obviously. Um, I think you could easily be. Bundler laughs. I don't. I don't. I really. I really don't see why that you couldn't be a religious psychoanalyst. I mean, these don't seem to be contradiction in terms at all. Indeed, they aren't. I mean, there are. You know, there are religious analysts. Of course, the trouble is, it depends on what you mean by being religious. Um, but there are Catholic. You know, there are Catholic psychoanalysts and so on. Things one might think extremely improbable. But it seems to me we never know who might come along and be able to make links between psychoanalysis and Buddhism. Many people have. Psychoanalysis and Christianity, many people have. So I think that's part of the unknowable future. But I do think it's better to incorporate languages rather than believe you've overcome them. Is there anything you couldn't be with a psycho, as a psychoanalyst as well, in terms of your ideological sort of... Is, is there any ism that you couldn't... That you really yes. couldn't put together with? Yeah, you? I mean fascism. I would have thought. And, and racism. I mean, it depends yeah. on... Well, the trouble is, you'd have to say yes and no. Because I imagine all analysts, I, all people, are racist and sexist. You see, I mean, that's integral to the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's also a place where such things could be discussed. That would be the liberal ideal. At least you could talk about them, whatever that means.
Yes, my question was really about the idea of dependence. And, and what I think you, you're saying, Adam, is that um, we, we can, in a way, um, it, it doesn't have to be a problem for us. I mean, we just need to reframe it in, in a certain way. And I think you're saying that that, in a way, is the Winnicottian baby uh, because it's not aware of its dependence. Is, 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 is that right? And because... The, the thing about that is obviously that the Winnicottian baby is not aware of its dependence because the mother enables it not to be the good enough mother. And the problem, of course, with Jesus is he doesn't have a good enough mother. He's a perfect mother, which is a, in a way. But, but, then, so, so for, but the thing is that we... we we've, how, can we how, how can we then... <laughs> but, but given, given where we are, and we are aware of our independence, of our... <laughs> of our dependence as adults. So it's, it's too late, isn't it? I mean, it seems to be... Too late for what? Too late to go back to the state of being babies or... We don't have, we don't have to go because we're already there, if you see it. Well, mean. then who is the good enough mother? Well, it could be the culture. It could be your wife, your boyfriend, your aunt, your friend. I mean, it could be dispersed over the cultural field. The caregiver. Yeah, the care, whoever, whoever looks after you, whoever you like being mm. with, whoever's company you crave. But the Winnicottian version, which is extremely utopian and idealistic, says, if you've got a good enough mother, you're in with a good chance. That what makes dependence a problem is the mother. As if to say, and of course this is where Klein is very interesting, <coughs> Winnicott would say, if you've got a good enough mother, then the basic thing's okay. What Klein would say is, well, actually, the baby can be a problem, his or herself. And also that... It's very, it's very difficult being a mother. Now, Winnicott does acknowledge this more than most analysts. But the hopeful story here is that um, if you have a mother and parents who don't exploit your dependence, you'll become a very nice person and have a happy life. And if you don't, you'll become a sadomasochist. You're too calm about this. This is why I was rude to you earlier. You're too calm about this situation, I think. This is what, this is what it is. Which is to say... I completely agree with you about the about uh, vulnerability being uh, essential to who it, to who we are as a constituent element of our humanity. But I also think that so too is the sort of rage against it as well. So, and I and and, and I don't think I don't I don't quite like the sort of calmness that you have about our own our own vulnerability. Yeah. No, so, no, for instance, yeah, yeah. you know, so so. Uh, you know, in terms, here's a vulnerable picture and so forth. I'm in love with someone who doesn't love me back. Okay. So you just go, fine, just be zen about it. Just like, just like, be calm and don't, just accept your own dependency. No, no. You, I want to go... Uh, no, 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 you know, you know I'm not saying that. Okay, but I... I mean, I'm, that would be ludicrous. It, it is ludicrous. Yes, but there's a different... Yeah, I know. But there's so a, the but, question yeah. is, so how is that... But, no, 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 but I can answer you. The difference is between talking about it and living it, right? In other words, we could have a calm conversation, something that intrinsically could not be calm. Because obviously we're talking about the most intense feelings anybody ever feels here. So that if, for example, we know, because we experience every day, frustration is extremely enraging, right? That's just ineluctable. So we can't, we can't be calm. I mean, one of the great things of the second point of view, from my point of view, is it says there is no peace. There, there will never be any peace. So the wish for tranquility, the wish for calm, is itself an illusion. Okay. Because we are absolutely... So that rage against... Uh, so the psalmists, you know, the psalms are full of a rage against, um, you know, the consequences of vulnerability. I'm always being done to. People are always being done to me. Those barters over there, this, that's, the, that's, the, that's what you get with the psalms constantly, again and again and again. Now that rage is perfectly 
consistent with an acceptance of one's own intrinsic yes, vulnerability. Yes, but, but I think what would matter is how one's rage is received by the... Well, how one's rage is received and what the stories the culture has to tell you about what's going on in your rage. Because this seems to me does have an effect here. That there is a sort of, you know, somatic, biological, whatever. But there's also a culture that is naming your rage for you. That is telling you what it's about. Which is telling you what you're trying to do by being enraged. Which is telling you what you're trying not to do by being enraged and so on. So that you, you're, born, you're born into a culture that sophisticates you whether you like it or not. And, and that's, it's that language we're having the conversation in. So we're not going to be screaming and shouting now, but we will be when and if we're frustrated beyond, our, beyond what we can bear. But the ultimate things are at stake here, I and mean, you're right, they would have to be. There's this, you know, it couldn't be a seminar to some fundamental level, because it's a bodily thing. Um, it's a question for Adam. When you were saying uh, about not wanting to know what you want, um, but wanting to find out what you want through the process of wanting. Um, what's the problem of knowing what you want first? Because it makes you a bully, and it cheats you of what you want. How does that, in what way? Do you mean how does it work? Yeah. Well, uh, my assumption like this, and these are, of course, they're all assumptions. My assumption is the story is like this, that there is um, unconscious wanting, that takes the form often of a sort of restlessness or an uncertainty. Now, one of the problems about capitalism is that it tries to stop us feeling frustrated. So very quickly, we will know what we want. You know, I want a Mars bar, I want to watch television, I want to masturbate, I want to have sex, the range of kind of cultural available things. Now, what interests me about this is that actually it might be the case that knowing beforehand, you see, if you know beforehand what you want, the question then is, how do I get them to give it to me? What have I got to do to get it? Now, that's one picture. There's another picture which says, I don't know what I want, and what I need at this moment is not to come up with something, but say to have a conversation with somebody in, through which it might appear or do something. I mean, I could dance, I could watch a film, I could do a range of cultural activities, but do something through which or in relation to uh, that would help me crystallize my desire. So it's the difference between wanting that's preempted and wanting that's open. See, if every time you cried as a child, your mother gave you a glass of orange juice, you would feel you were being fobbed off. Because orange juice is not the cure to every frustration, just the cure of the wish for, for orange juice. That's the picture. I think this is a question to both of you. I wonder whether the God we've had at the back of the conversation is an omnipotent, omniscient creator God um, who could fulfill these cravings, whereas there are modern views of God that are not like that at all. If you demythologize Christianity, you take out the whole of incarnation, resurrection, and so forth, and that's been demythologized by Rudolf Bultmann, theologian, and there are modern views of God that would make him as dependent on us as we might be on him, as vulnerable. And there's a line in T.S. Eliot, I think. I have a notion that clings of some infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. 
And this is a codependent God that's like a consciousness above the collective consciousness of the human race. That if there, the consequence of this would be that if there were no human beings or no world, there would be no God. That they are interdependent. Uh, there's all sorts of things to say about that. Um, I mean, I have a real beef against uh, um, the God described by words like omnipotent and omniscient and so forth. Um, I, I certainly don't believe in that God whatsoever. Um, that God of the philosophers, which is what Pascal called um, that God. And, I mean, it seems to me to be not the God of the Bible. Um, because the God of the Bible is, uh, is, is so much more... I mean, it just isn't, hasn't been defied by that sort of philosophical tradition whatsoever. So, you know, God will change his or her mind. Um, all sorts of things doesn't seem to know is completely... It's, it's much more messy. It's a much more messy picture of the divine. So, you know, when the philosophers got hold of God and uh, turn God into this particular philosophical construction. Um, I, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a brilliant book uh, by a Jesuit called Michael Buckley III called At the Origins of Modern Atheism. It's an absolutely brilliant book. And he basically said that uh, when uh, Christianity, that's what he's talking about, abandoned the sort of the terms of reference that were in the, 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 the Bible, talking about salvation talking about those sorts of things, and turn to the philosophers for defense against the sort of incoming threat to itself. That's when, uh, that's, that's when we lost. So that, that whole sense of omniscient, omnipotent, all that sort of language, I don't believe in it. I absolutely don't believe in it. It's a completely different sense, messier. I mean, I will sign up with absolutely every atheist against that position, you know, fundamentally and strongly. But what you have in the, in the scriptures is not what's being described there at all. It's, um, it's, the, it's the story of a, a people yearning, um, crying, desiring, something to do with their humanity, something to do with the way in which they talk about the beyond, um, and, and, and getting it wrong a lot of the time, and that sort of understanding of what's going on in the scriptures, which I think is, I think is much more understood in the Jewish tradition, much more understood in, in the sort of midrashic stuff than, than in especially 20th century Christianity, which is, is a basket case, I think, intellectually. Um, I, I think that is, is a completely different, you know, different understanding whatsoever. So, uh, sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but that's a rant precisely against that sort of language, which I'm, you know, entirely hostile to. And I just don't think anything very interesting grips onto that language other than a sort of boo-hurrah debate about the existence of God. And if we're talking about that sort of God, then I'm with the atheists. I'm completely with the atheists. <coughs> Sorry, I was ranting there. No, no, you weren't. No. I, I mean, I've only got, I mean, in a way, it's complimentary to what Giles was saying, but I just don't know why you'd need to call it God then. You see, I can see, it makes sense to me as a description of a relationship, the two, as it were, equally dependent, vulnerable creatures are involved with each other. That seems to me just as a naturalistic fact. Why you would need to call one of them God, I don't know. 
What are you doing when you call something God, then? I mean, that, what, what are you... Well, I presume you're saying that, uh, that it has something that you don't have. C- can you say... Sorry, sorry, hold on, hold on. Yeah, go, go on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Eros and Agape share exactly the same root. One grows out of the other. Two trees out of a common root. And that the more we know about Eros, the more we have a sense of Agape. <coughs> yeah. But that's also a very, I mean, it, who cares? But it's a very psychoanalytic point. <laughs> William Temple, this is, where I, this is where I start religiously rather than... William Temple, who I think is the great science bishop of Canterbury, um, uh, said the great aim of all true religion, and this is, this is where we're talking, for me, uh, the great aim of all true religion is to transfer the centre of interest in your life from self to God. So it's, as it were, to find the centre of interest in your life outside of yourself. Now, it, it's seen as, and this is maybe where we'll, I'm just trying to generate disagreement here, that, that Christianity is seen as an answer to self-absorption and that that, this, that that as it were if I now the truth is if you place the center of gravity in your life outside of yourself yeah. the people you love or whatever you what but that other then that vulnerability is intrinsic intrinsic but, to the why do you experience. yes but why do you need something so radically other you see I, I my version of what you just said would be we have to do everything we can to enable ourselves to enjoy each other's company. It's the only game in town. We don't need God. We don't need something outside ourselves. We just need to find what it is we're doing that sabotages our pleasure in each other's company. That would seem to be a really good project. <laughs> and that, I think, is one of the projects that a version of psychoanalysis could be involved in. I don't and know does if... that feel like a cure? So, so do you recognize something called self-absorption that... That, that is pathological. Well, I recognize... A Morally. Ret- I, well, I, I recognize how somebody might have to be obsessed by themselves if no one else is concerned about them, say. I recognize how, if external reality is intolerable, you might then have to retreat into extreme self-concern, say. So I would say not... But those are, bought, those are boundary experiences. They're boundary experiences, but, all, but the risk would be, I'm not saying you're doing this, but the risk would be just to, as we pathologize narcissism. I would say what's called narcissism is a self-cure for some really difficult things. Now, one of the things about so-called narcissistic people, like all of us, is that a part of us is in despair about the value of other people. And I think we should do, be doing whatever we can to see the value in other people. I've got to tell you a joke and the joke is, this related to this conversation, this is before we came here, you know I'm going to say, before we came here, uh, we, we came here a bit early, and uh, we went to the museum, and Adam bought me two books. Um, and it turned out that the books, were, both of them had uh, him writing the introduction. <coughs> and I said, jokingly, they're not about narcissism, are they? And he said, no, they're not about narcissism, they're about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps on that note, we should stop. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much. Brilliant.